Hi, this is Larry Pasca, Executive Director of NCSS, the National Council for the Social Studies. This episode features an author published in an NCSS journal. Please enjoy. You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators and the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. Michael, families are such an important part of our life, right? It's like we learn so much of who we are. You know, we learn how to, our language, how to speak, dialects, culture, traditions. We learn so much from our families. I feel like it should be such an important part of like, you know, social studies, thinking about families. Did you do any lessons or analysis or talking or discussing families when you were in school? I remember being in first grade and we were asked to like, you know, I guess it was a thing to like draw a picture of your family. And so everyone drew a picture of their family and you got like color yarn for the hair and I had to get the gray yarn and someone said to me, you're supposed to draw your father, not your grandfather. And I was so embarrassed because my, my dad had gone gray. He was like 35 years old and he had a full head of gray hair. And that, that was such like this moment where I was so embarrassed about that. And it's something that really stuck with me. Yeah, it was just this, I felt really bad. Right. And I don't know why. And it's a little, it's little, it's hair color, right? It's really silly, but it, it was, I felt so, I don't know, different in a weird way. Yeah. Right. They put your family down, right? Which is like everything at that point in your life. They put your dad down like in a way that, made him abnormal or outsider or different in some way that was unacceptable. I mean, and it's weird because hard. I feel like today, like there's a lot more like multi-generational living, um, but where I grew up, it just wasn't, and again, it wasn't even, yeah, it was weird. It was uncomfortable. Have you ever had done anything like that in school? I feel like I can't really remember a lot of focus on our families and I feel like I could have benefited from it. I yeah. remember, you know, when I was in elementary, my parents were divorced and I had the most amazing parents. And I have great step parents, so I feel like I'm lucky I have four parents. But I don't, I really wish like there was more conversations about families at school because I know for sure that I could have used someone who helped me learn how to talk about it. Yeah. And talk about what it meant when my parents got divorced because I feel like I was basically just kind of guessing. And because no one talked about it very much, I feel like I was always, you know, felt like it was a taboo topic. I wasn't supposed to talk about it and that it, I should be embarrassed myself that like my parents got divorced, even though I, I don't know, like it's, I guess I just wish I had teachers that brought these conversations up in school. Cause I think they're really relevant for kids. Yeah. I feel like whenever we did, cause we've read a lot of books, right? A lot of picture books and there's always like mom, dad, kids. And then like, that was pretty much it, but it, there's really not much difference. Right. At least that right. I remember. And I feel like things probably have changed since then. And I hope things have changed since then to be much more inclusive of, of, of you know, the, the modern family. Right. Or not Which, even the modern family, because I imagine families that that existed back then. It's just they're like just erased. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. So the family, the differences among families are such a good way of understanding differences among groups. But the families that get accepted and normalized 
you know, they, they are validated and other families maybe aren't. So maybe we should have somebody on to help us think about like how you would teach about this in schools. What do you say? I was thinking maybe we should have two people on to do this. <laughs> that sounds good to me. Yes. So we would like to welcome into the podcast, Selena Van Horn and Andrea Hockman. Welcome. Thank you. Hi, guys. Hey, thanks for having us. We are thrilled to have the both of you on. So can each of you just tell us a little bit about your backgrounds in education? Yeah, this is Selena. I'm from California State University in Fresno. I'm assistant professor of literacy education here. But before that, I was an elementary school teacher myself. I started teaching elementary school Spanish, and then I moved into the classroom. I've taught both primary grades and intermediate grades. And after that, I worked as the director of education for the Boys and Girls Clubs in Columbia, Missouri, where I was in grad school. And this is Andrea, and I am an assistant professor of social studies and cultural studies education at Utah State University. And prior to to that, I did my graduate studies at the University of Missouri, where I met Selena. We were both doctoral students there. And then I used to also teach high school social studies in in rural Missouri. So I was kind of, I I taught a lot of different things, uh, world history, U.S. history, AP history, film class. I was also a coach, helped write curriculum. You know, in the smaller districts, you kind of do a lot of different things. So I got a lot of opportunities to engage. Can I ask you two, did in your own K-12 experiences, did your teachers bring up families much and allow you to wrestle with these topics? Hmm. This is like going in the Wayback Machine, Dan. Yeah. Probably sometimes I feel like is a... Yeah. I feel like I drew pictures of my family and we... I remember doing some sort of family tree project in a really basic, you know, write out who you know, who you can name from your, from your ancestors. But I don't remember anything really substantial about, you know, what that meant to me as a student, what that meant in my community, different types of families. There was never a conversation of, hey, families don't always look the same. So pretty basic, nothing really memorable from my past. I would say for my elementary school experience, I remember family history projects and like immigration stories and things like that. We would, we talked about that. I do remember always having the largest family of everyone that I went to school with. I have a brother and two sisters, but I have about now about 60 first cousins. (laughs) So I know that, that it was always growing during those times. And that was always something that I knew that it wasn't typical to have that many people in your family, I guess. But for me, it was normal. And uh, I think that discussions of interracial families and families with two moms or two dads, different kinds of families, wasn't a discussion in school, but more outside of the classroom, maybe among friends or neighbors, things like that. Yeah, you know, the... One thing I can say about the Brady Bunch, which I can't say much about it, because I only think I watched a few episodes ever, but is that it was helpful for me to describe my family because my family was basically the Brady Bunch in the sense that it was when my dad remarried, it was three of us kids, and then I had three step-siblings, and each family had a weenie dog, and so that was our family. Did they have (laughs) weenie dogs in the Brady Bunch? Uh, I don't actually remember their pet situation, but I was able to explain to quickly to people that it was our families like the Brady Bunch. There's six of us. <laughs> that's all I got. Brady Bunch is like, that's like a precursor to step by step, right? Is that? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> pretty much. Pretty much. Maybe they had weenie dogs. <laughs> 
The weenie dogs may have just been an add-on for my family. So you two wrote a fantastic article that was recently published in Social Studies and the Young Learner. The article is titled, First Comes Love, Then Comes Marriage, Parentheses, Equality, Welcoming Diverse Families in the Elementary Classroom. Can you tell us a bit about this article? So we started this article uh, a few years ago back in... 2015, before the Obergefell v. Hodges decision, we were writing it with the hopes <laughs> that the decision would be in favor of same-sex marriage. But at that time, you know, we weren't exactly sure how it would play out. And we really came to this from our different perspectives. Andrew and I were both in grad school at the time, uh, working on our doctoral programs. I was in literacy and she in social studies. And we were really kind of talking about how there are times when teachers aren't sure where these topics fit into their daily schedule. Are they in social studies? Are they in literacy? Where do we bring in, is literature only in the literacy time? Do we talk about the Supreme Court only during social studies time? And we really wanted to find ways that we could talk about our interdisciplinary topics and our work together. Yeah, I think also, I think we, we draw on the C3 framework in the article as well, because we, we realize kind of the state of elementary social studies is that it's often marginalized. So if we could find a way to, you know, pair social studies content with literacy practices and skills and resources, we thought this would, you know, provide a justification for teachers to talk about topics that perhaps they were afraid to talk about or were unsure of how to, to take up with their elementary age students. It seems like one of the problems with our disciplinary thinking is the way we separate these things, right? That these are just important issues in our community, but then we have to figure out which box it fits into in the standardized school curriculum. But I'm glad that you all like have given it really probably two boxes to fit into, right? Which hopefully um, allows it. Now, literacy gets actually taught in schools, sometimes unlike social studies. So hopefully that can help us wrestle with these these topics. So what what was kind of the substance of, of your kind of argument in the ways that we can talk about these issues with kids? So one of the first things we wanted to do is to talk about marriage equality in a way that helped to understand the history of that concept, because you know, a Burgerfeld decision obviously gave fundamental right to same-sex couples to marry, but that wasn't the first conversation in our past, in our country, about marriage equality, that in fact, the Loving v. Virginia case from 1967 was kind of the first big case uh, in, in, in recent history about marriage equality, and that was about interracial marriage. So we saw these cases as, as linked, and that we, we couldn't talk about Obergefell without historicizing and racializing this idea of marriage equality through loving. So that was one of our main, our main goals, was to put these two, these two cases together. Yeah, we, and one thing we also discussed was how do we talk about this? And early on in the article, we are very specific to, to talk about marriage equality to us is about all, is marriage equality overall. And that having the Loving v. Virginia case state that interracial marriages were legalized or could not be banned didn't actually include everyone still. And the Obergefell v. Hodges, if we only review it or talk about it in terms of same-sex marriage, we're still not talking about marriage in general. So marriage equality and same-sex marriage are sometimes interchanged when people talk about the Obergefell v. Hodges case. And we wanted to be really clear about how we were discussing that so we could show the history of it. Because even still, some of my pre-service teachers are surprised at 
how recent in our history the Levin v. Virginia case is, to, to know that it was just in 67, and that it wasn't way before that. And sometimes we aren't thinking about those connections across time. And so we really thought that that was important, that we make that connection early on with the children as well, so that teachers are reviewing that and that they can really have these conversations with their children about how that timeline works and how their families look in terms of that timeline. It's always stunning to think about that some of the major civil rights legislation passed in 64 and 65 were passed and interracial marriage was still outlawed. I mean, it's, it's kind of like stunning, but it also, I think, points to the continuity and change that exists in how it goes to show how groups that are marginalized in society, whether it's couples who are interracial or whether it's, you know, uh, same sex couples, that these the things don't all change at once, right? Even when some progress is made in one area, there could be other areas where there's a backlash or there's those laws don't change. So it's kind of can, shows that how that progress isn't linear and that it often requires kind of continued efforts. But it's just always, it, that's stunning to me. And I think sometimes it, it, students find it that, stunning too, that that didn't come before some of the major civil rights legislation. Well, I think that's actually a nice extension from the article is to look at same-sex equality um, post-Obergefell. You can see some of the same things as you see in uh, around the Loving decision, right? Marriage equality for same-sex couples did not end discrimination. There are still issues uh, around housing discrimination, healthcare discrimination. Many same-sex couples face problems when trying to adopt even their own children who they've had in a loving relationship. They still have to then go through a second parent adoption. So Obergefell, just like Loving, didn't solve all the problems, but it is a, you know, a major benchmark in moving the conversation forward. I know that one thing you highlighted in the article is how we can use picture books as a way into this issue. Can you tell us a little bit about some books you found and some advice you have for teachers in using them? Yeah, when one of the entry points, I think, especially with elementary school teachers, is through literature. Oftentimes, our children are able to connect with a character in a story and see them through their whole story, which I think is really important because when we're talking in the classroom, we can get a lot of questions from our students. We always don't know how to answer right in the moment. And one of the things I always talk with teachers and pre-service teachers about is that we don't have to know the answers, which is something we always talk about, especially through an inquiry model. But how do we sit with some of these things? How do we think about them and come back to them? And children's literature is a really great entry point to talk about different topics. And some of the ones that we brought up um, in, and that we have cited and we can share more definitely are about how do children with two moms or two dads navigate the school system? Because that's really what's happening with lots of our children as well. And teachers, I think, actually can learn a lot through the picture books, too. If they haven't experienced this before, if they think, oh, if I have a child with two moms or two dads, then I'll definitely bring this literature in. Cool. How do we get that started? Where do you, what topics could possibly come up? How can you as a teacher be prepared ahead of time? And then also enter into this with your students in a way that our children with LGBTQ identifying family members can understand or share their story without having to personalize it always. And that for all of our students to learn about how they might be able to talk about certain topics 
when to ask something or when to learn first before we ask a question, things like that. And we talk about uh, a couple of different books, specifically Usha's Moms is a great book focusing on what happens in schools with, with parent forms and how do we talk about them. But then we also have some newer literature too, which I think is really important because the literature that's been coming out in the last 10 years is really a lot more inclusive. And we really, I, I really want to encourage teachers to look at those publication dates to think about how they would engage those conversations with the children. Do you mind giving a few examples of the picture books that you think would be good? I'm also buying picture books a lot now, so. I'm happy to talk about it. That's my children's literature is actually one of my areas of research and LGBTQ specific literature is really important that we think about how families and, and LGBTQ identifying characters are shared and celebrated within our literature. So specifically Usha's mom is the one I talked about. Usha goes to school and um, finds that when she has to fill out a form to go on a field trip that it asks for her parents' names. But like many school forms that our children see, they the parents' options are only mom and dad. And we see this a lot in many of our schools in terms of admission forms for children to get into school, permission letters, things like that. And they're very exclusive in terms of what a parent's uh, identity can be. And through this book, Asha really gets to talk with her teacher. Her mom gets to talk. One of her moms comes in and talks to the teacher and things. And, and they're able to showcase with the class that there are other families that maybe students in the classroom haven't known about before. Another book that we talk about, though, is a recent publication that came out around the time of the Obergefell v. Hodges case, although I'm sure it wasn't written specifically for that, but thinking about how a child in kindergarten comes to school and we have these very gendered and family-specific holidays we talk about, like Mother's Day and Father's Day. And in Stella Brings the Family, Stella has two dads. And for Mother's Day, because that comes first in our calendar, while they're making cards for a Mother's Day celebration, she doesn't have a mom and she's trying to think about how her family fits in. And eventually she brings her whole family because she doesn't just have two dads. She also has a lot of other loving family members. But the book really shows us that while we learn about Stella's family, there are other families that the children have that aren't discussed. And we find out when Father's Day is about to come, oh no, there's a kid in class who doesn't have a dad because he has two moms. How is he going to go about that? And so I think what's great about this literature is that it allows our students to see what children could grapple with follow what's happening in the storyline, see what they're questioning, see how others react to them. And they might be the Stella in the story, or they might identify with one of the other kids in class who didn't know that Stella had two dads. And so they get to see how this story plays out and ways to celebrate Stella and her family without asking questions that position them in an other identity or, uh, or other them from, from other parents in class. I really appreciate that about picture books. They just open up a world for us to examine the issues in our own life, but to examine them from a story that's in front of us. And I, it seems like these look like tremendous books for initiating conversations and allowing students to share what they're comfortable with, ask questions, but often the questions in terms of the book, right? And so it allows you to talk about real issues that maybe they wouldn't know how to ask those questions. But once they read through the books, I'm guessing have it helps them see possible questions they could have or also just you know, have affirming images and pictures and stories of LGBTQ families. So you would use the, the picture books as kind of like an introduction to your inquiry, correct? 
Yeah, I think they can provide a really good foundation to get students asking questions about uh, the text, as you mentioned, but then also about the world that they're in. But they can also be used to provide some additional content and a really uh, accessible level. So another one of the books that we suggest in in the article is The Case for Loving, The Fight for Interracial Marriage, which which is a picture book about the Loving v. Virginia case. So, you know, it's a really uh, student-friendly way to introduce the topic, the medium that they're familiar with, with language that they can access, but also get them thinking about, you know, how, what would it be like if, if they weren't able to marry someone that they loved? How would that feel? How would that feel for their family and being valued in the community or be able to represent themselves in ways that other families get to represent themselves? This also seems like part of a larger social studies project where we are including LGBTQ people in the social studies curriculum, right? I think oftentimes, for example, people like Bayard Rustin don't, you know, get their due and how that was such an important part of the civil rights movement, but also the ways that he was even pushed out of the civil rights movement at times because he was gay. And some of the struggles that he faced in the the ways that even, you know, senators even were going to blackmail civil rights workers because of Bayard Rustin's presence. And we just often don't bring up those issues because these are not new issues. They just were erased and, and silenced in so many ways throughout our history. And so I love that we're bringing this up today, but I also think this is a great opportunity to talk not just about gay families, but you know, gay civil rights leaders and you know, transgender soldiers who fought in on the other side of the Civil War and the and these characters and people in history whose stories have for too long been erased. Yeah, one of the things we wanted to talk about too is about how across the country, really, the way that different states are taking up LGBTQ inclusive curriculum and standards for what teachers should be teaching in their states. And just even thinking about the intersecting identities that you're talking about, about not having one identity, but having multiple identities that are maybe seen differently in our different spaces. In California, there's the FAIR Act, which is really calling for LGBTQ identities being taught throughout our social studies curriculum as young as second grade to really talk about the contributions LGBTQ people have made to the history of our state. And this is happening really across states. We see in in Illinois, they voted to have LGBTQ inclusive curriculum. It's happening in Massachusetts, maybe. Michael would want to speak more about that. We've seen in our other states as well, while Andrea and I were working in Missouri, I worked with children there that we talked about LGBTQ inclusive literature and discussions that perhaps some people might not realize are happening in the different states, that we think that there are certain locations that you can have these conversations and others maybe that we wouldn't, but we wanted to show that it's not necessarily the case. Yeah, I think we were hoping that this article would you know, provide the language and the, and, the, and the tasks that teachers could engage in across the country, regardless of the political leanings of a particular state. Because there are LGBTQ families in every state, in every school district. I live in Utah, arguably one of the most conservative states in the country. But my wife and I have a three-year-old daughter who talks about having two moms every day when she's at school. And actually, Michael, it was funny that you talked about drawing a family picture, creating a family picture. Because just this morning, I picked up my daughter's first version of that at school. And it was so sweet. She used finger paint and drew 
her mom, her mommy and I, um, well, she's so the teachers claim it basically just looked like a big blob, but uh, <laughs> it was so sweet that, uh, you know, she was able to do that. And her teachers affirmed that she has two moms. And I think she's the only person in her class with two moms, but that they were welcoming and inviting, even in a space that you might from the outside think isn't welcoming and inviting. So um, these conversations are everywhere, regardless of if we don't think that they are happening or not. So I think it's in our best interest to to find ways to infuse uh, all, all spaces with these kinds of conversations. And I appreciate the fact that you are, and so there is a lesson plan. If you do go to the Social Studies and the Young Learner, there is a, a lesson plan and a lot of great material that you can take a look at. So I highly recommend any elementary teachers and really anyone listening to go take a look. It's really, it's a, it's a remarkable job. And thank you so much for, for doing this. Yeah, we're happy to. Yeah. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing this. We think it, that teachers are ready and want to, and we're really excited to to connect with them on this. And I'm also excited to purchase these for my daughter. Michael's developing quite the collection based on our episodes. I do, I do. That's pretty much it. That's why we do the podcast, so I can find out new, new books for my kid. The truth comes <laughs> out, finally. <Yeah. laughs> I'm all for that. Yeah. <laughs> What advice do you have for teachers that really want to do a better job of being inclusive of LGBTQ families, diverse families, interracial families, and uh, what resources are out there for them to do this work? I think uh, one thing that comes to mind is that there are things teachers can do in their local classroom and school community to create more affirming and welcoming spaces for their for their students and for their families. It can be really simple as changing opening up a Word document and changing mom and dad to parent or guardian. You know, that doesn't take a lot of time, but can mean a lot to the people who are looking at those forms every day and have to cross out dad or mom when, you know, that doesn't, that's not reflective of how they identify. So I think, you know, in real time, they can make substantial impact on the way that they're, that they can support families in their school. And then I'll share one resource that I use, and then I know Selena is kind of the go-to person on children's literature, so I'll let her share some more. But a place that I like to go to find resources is socialjusticebooks.org. You might have talked about it on the podcast before, but it's a really great selection of multicultural and social justice books for children of all ages, young adults, and even into high school. So I find that really useful. And they, they analyze the article, the, excuse me, the texts, uh, and they review them based on those kind of frameworks. So I find that really useful. Well, I, one thing I was going to say as for elementary school teachers, as a former elementary school teacher myself, I think that oh, one thing for teachers to really take into consideration is the fact that we want to create inclusive and welcoming spaces in our communities and in our classrooms. And that really can start with the choices that we make ourselves. How do we set up our space? Even the posters we have up in our classrooms. With Welcoming Schools, it's part of the Human Rights Campaign. There are lots of posters and materials that, that are free to teachers ways to set up our space so that both visually and through our forms, any any paperwork we send out, it's inclusive. For families who have been excluded, they'll immediately see that this is a different space, that there's a different climate here. And for families who haven't been aware of it before, they'll start to notice those changes in language and what's on the posters or the literature that we even just display in our classrooms. 
And I think it's important that we realize that while picture books are one of the things that we represent, and I love picture books, and I think that there's there's no age limit to them. So you can read them at all ages. But I know that there's more literature that's coming out at the mid-level, maybe third, fourth grade reading level for our older students to read to get a deeper connection and understanding of what characters are going through. So for example, uh, one book I really love is called George. By Alex Gino, and it's a scholastic book. So, for all those teachers who are still dealing with AR and all of that, the accelerated reader programs and things where their students have to test after reading, it's part of those programs too. So, we don't have to really see a separation between wanting to read high quality literature about diverse people and being assessed on them. So, George, that book is about a character who is transgender and she comes out in fourth grade. So I think it's really awesome for our teachers to be able to read this literature too, that we get to see what she's going through and how she comes out to her friends and her family. And that this isn't something that is just for adults, that our young people are questioning their identities or they have different identities they want to share with us. And I think that there's more than just picture books for our young students and teachers, but also I'm, I'm always supportive of the picture books. And I think that they really can let us in for a short time on these different stories and to connect with the characters. And if you want to think a little bit more about this topic, we we can refer you back to Little Self-Promotion, episode 39, on supporting transgender students with Amber Briggle and Genevieve Mayat. And Amber is a community, is a, a, a member of our community who has really been, you know, an activist because she was forced into the role just as a mother protecting her transgender son. And and so those are such important issues. And, and again, we just really appreciate you all raising them and helping social studies and English language arts teachers figure out how to do justice to this issue and justice in our society on this topic. So thank you. Thank you so much for having us. Yes, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Where can our listeners find you and your work online? For me, you can just email me at svanhorn at csufresno.edu. Andrea is more tech savvy than me. I <laughs> uh, wouldn't go that far, but I'm on Twitter at, at ahawk12. Uh, you can also email me, and my email address is andrea.hawkman at usu.edu. All right. Well, we definitely will continue the conversation by everyone sending you emails or tweets, or you can send us tweets and we can continue the conversation online and in other spaces. At the Visions of Education podcast, we are all about sharing the learning. If you're doing something fun, creative education, or you just want to chat, tweet us at Visions of Ed. We're also in other places like Facebook, the mystery space. And of course, if you haven't, Subscribe to Visions of Education on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and anywhere you want us to be. We're anywhere you want us to be and in a mystery place. That is Are those correct. two different places or is that the same place? It depends <laughs> if you want us to be in this mystery place. We're there. I just forget which one it was. <laughs> and one mystery place that you can check us out is on Apple Podcasts where you can leave us a five-star review. And if you do so, we will read it on the air. We, we won't keep it a mystery. That We can tell you that the Apple algorithms like five-star reviews, and it helps people find this podcast. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Kretka. And I'm at 42 Think Deep. Until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast. Signing off.